John 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Great, thank you, Claire, and thank you, Mark. And it's great to see you all. Thank you for joining us um, as we look at this passage. Um, Shall we start off with a prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to meet together and look at your word now. Be with us as we look at this passage and by your spirit, reveal more of who you are to each of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So first impressions are important. Apparently, it takes a mere seven seconds to make a first impression. So if you haven't met me before, you will already have formed a view of me, at least subconsciously. I mean, we all know this, It's why we spend so much time preparing for a job interview, deciding what to wear, making sure we turn up in the right place at the right time, perfecting our opening lines. We want to make a good impression. It's also why a singer will put so much meticulous effort into the launch of a new album or an author of a new book. And for those of us working in politics, We all know how much thought goes into launching a new campaign, a new report, a new policy plan. You often only get one shot to get people's attention. You can only make a first impression once. And so it's particularly striking that here in the second chapter of John's gospel, this is the first miracle that is recorded. The first big act of Jesus's public ministry is turning water into wine at a wedding. Did you notice that in the last verse of our passage, verse 11, John describes this as the first of the signs through which Jesus revealed his glory. According to John's account, Jesus kick-started his public ministry, not with a big healing, not with some dramatic miracle like calming the storm or walking on water, not even with a groundbreaking sermon, but instead with what at first glance looks like a neat party trick to sort out a catering mishap. 
no one's dying. It all takes place a bit behind the scenes. And yet this is described as a sign revealing Jesus's glory. What is going on here? At this point, I just want to say something briefly on the word signs. In the other gospel accounts, the word most often used for Jesus' miracles is the Greek word dunamis, meaning power. It's where we get the word dynamite from. The miracles are there to show Jesus' power and what the kingdom of God is like. However, John uses this different word, semeon, meaning sign. Through the miracles John chooses to record, and he only records seven compared to many more in the other gospels, he is revealing something about who Jesus is and what he came to do. They are all signposts to the ultimate sign in John's gospel, Jesus' death and resurrection. And near the end of his gospel, in John 20 verse 31, John says that the reason he chose these particular signs will say that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So that means that this episode is important and provides a significant piece of the puzzle of discovering who Jesus is and what exactly it means to have life in his name. But what does turning water into wine at a wedding in an insignificant village in northern Israel reveal to us about Jesus? This lunchtime, I'm going to look at three aspects of this encounter that will help us to work this out. The problem, Jesus' response, and then the transformation that he brings. So firstly, the problem, looking particularly at verses one to four. Now, I don't know about you, but I love a good wedding. The joy, the fun, the food, the dancing, and weddings were a big deal in first century Israel. They lasted as long as a week and involved the whole community. They really knew how to party. Back in those days, marriage was less about two individuals finding love and happiness, but more about binding the community together and strengthening it through family ties. The bridegroom was expected to provide all of the food and wine for the festivities, and it was a massive deal if it ran out. This is not just some awkward embarrassment. The whole family would be disgraced. The couple might see it as bad luck at the start of their marriage, and the new in-laws would certainly not be happy. And in an honor and shame culture, Disgrace like this could have lasting effects. So there is this problem brewing. Jesus and his disciples and his mother are all there. Chances are that this is a wedding of a family member or a family friend. And when this problem arises, Mary comes to Jesus with it, as we see in verse three. They have no more wine. Mary might not necessarily be expecting Jesus to perform a miracle, she might just be relying on her eldest son to help out practically. But just look at Jesus's response in verse four. It is bizarre. Woman, why do you involve me? And then the enigmatic, my hour has not yet come. This certainly seems a bit abrupt. 
Throughout John's Gospel, we get repeated references to Jesus's hour, which is later revealed to be his death and resurrection. But even knowing that, it still seems like an Jesus' mother comes to him to say, there's no more wine. And Jesus responds, I'm not ready to die. Talk about a non sequitur. Something more is going on here than meets the eye. Let's hold that thought back to it later. So there's the problem, impending catastrophe. We'll now read on to find out what Jesus does about it in the second aspect of this encounter. Despite his initial response, Jesus has compassion on the bridegroom's plight and he acts to save him and the family from disgrace. Mary tells the servants to do what Jesus tells them and he gets them to fill up six stone jars with water and the servants do as they are told. Goodness knows what they would have been thinking as they drew out the water and handed it to the master of the banquet. And miraculously, it turns into wine. And it's not just any wine either. First hand shows that this wine is exquisite. This is no five pound bottle of wine from Tesco, but the very best. And just look at the quantity. It is abundant. Now I've done the sums and each jar holds 120 liters and there are six. That makes 720 litres. If your average bottle of wine is 750 mils, that makes 960 bottles of wine or a staggering 5,760 glasses of wine. That is more wine than they would ever have needed. Jesus doesn't just whip up a few extra bottles to tide them over, but is completely lavish and extravagant in his generosity. Now, as soon as we get talk of extravagant feasts and the finest of wines, those who know their Old Testament will immediately think back to some of the prophecies about the new creation, which the Messiah, God's chosen one, would bring about. For example, in Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 to 8, is written, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. This new creation that the Messiah will bring about will be like an amazing feast, abundant and extravagant. Indeed, it will be like the best wedding feast. By transforming this wedding feast in Cana, Jesus is declaring that he is the Messiah, God's chosen one, the one who will bring about this hope of life transformed, of death destroyed forever, of tears wiped away of a time when not just this crisis is over, but all crises are over forever. By providing the wine at the wedding, Jesus is placing himself in the role of the bridegroom, providing for his people, a role which elsewhere in scripture is reserved for God alone. 
This picture of a wedding feast keeps cropping up in the Bible. For example, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus likens the kingdom of God to a wedding feast prepared by a king for his son. And then at the end of the Bible, the new creation is described as a wedding in Revelation 19 and 21. Weddings and marriage are used as a brilliant picture of the kind of relationship God wants with his people, one of complete intimacy and devotion. The Christian hope is not about going to some ethereal heaven when we die, but rather a hope of new creation, of new life, of God dwelling with his people firmly and finally, united with them as if in a marriage. Of a completely transformed new age, marked by joy and celebration, like the best party ever. And here is Jesus ushering it in. And so onto our third and final aspect of the encounter. What does this new era, this transformation look like? Later in John's gospel, Jesus says that he has come so that people may have life and have it to the full. Jesus transforms the wedding feast at Cana with the best wine. He brings fullness of life. He takes that ordinary water and turns it into extraordinary wine. This is heaven, God's power and love, breaking into a broken world and transforming it. Jesus brings new life, joy and hope to the present. That future reality of new creation begins to break in and transform life now. Elsewhere in the Bible, we read that Jesus brings forgiveness, the security of knowing we are right with God, peace and comfort through the difficulties of life, a sense of meaning and purpose, a deep-rooted joy that cannot be quenched. All of this is on offer to us. We can join the party. And this should dispel any image we might have of Jesus as some cosmic party pooper. It's time to throw out those misconceptions that he has come to spoil all of our fun. No, this is life in colour, life in all its fullness, which he offers to us. But how is this new creation brought about? How is this new era ushered in? Let's go back to Jesus' hesitation in verse 4. He knew that his hour had not yet come, but it would. The only other interaction with his mother that John records is in chapter 19, when Jesus is dying on the cross. What's began here at Cana would end up at Calvary. Just as he poured out the wine so extravagantly, he would pour out himself for us in an extravagant act of sacrificial love, thus bringing about true new life and redemption restoration and transformation for all. Did you notice a little detail about those stone water jars which Jesus used in verse six? They were the kind of jars used for ceremonial washing, all as part of detailed purification rituals which were required to make yourself clean before God. And yet Jesus takes that old ritualistic system and does something new. He demonstrates that he will accomplish what the old ceremonial and sacrificial laws pointed to, the ultimate reconciliation 
between God and his people that will enable new life and new creation. But he knew that as soon as he started his public ministry, as soon as he started making bold claims about being the Messiah, he was beginning on the road that would lead to the cross. He will bring life. He will bring joy and abundance and festive celebration. But it will happen his life. And what do we have to join the party? Transformation and life in all its fullness come when we follow Jesus. When we believe in him, as his disciples did in verse 11. This does not mean that as soon as we follow Jesus, all hardships fall away. The Bible is very clear that that is not the case this side of eternity. But what it does mean is that God begins the transformative work by his Holy Spirit. He breaks into our lives and begins to work. And we have the hope of the new creation to come when this will be fully consummated. So what has this sign shown us about who Jesus is and what he came to do? We see Jesus stand up and show that he is God's chosen Messiah, the one who will usher in a new era. We see that he has come to bring transformation. He comes to bring life in all its fullness and to invite us to join the ultimate festive joy and celebration of the new creation. How is that for a first impression? How do we respond? Right now, in lockdown once again, with all the ongoing uncertainties and difficulties of the pandemic, life in all its fullness might seem very far away. We look at that future new creation with longing, but are very aware that we are not there yet. We're currently waiting for the end of lockdown, for the end of the pandemic, to be reunited with friends and family and to be able to go back to doing all the things we enjoy. And yet this is only a shadow of waiting for all the broken things in our world to be put right, for that final new creation. And yet here in the waiting, God is at work transforming lives. If you follow Jesus already, are you trusting your life to him, even when life is hard? How does the hope and joy of new creation help to transform your life now amidst all the current challenges? Is there an area of life where you need to let him in again to bring his transformation? And if you don't yet follow Jesus, let me challenge you to keep coming back as we work our way through John's gospel and find out more about who Jesus is. Look at what he has come to bring. Forgiveness, joy, peace, transformation. And do you grab me, Claire or Mark, and ask us about how Jesus has transformed our lives. We'd love to tell you more. Let us pray to finish. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus to bring transformation and life in all its fullness. Thank you for his abundant love and generosity that he would lay down his life so that we might get to enjoy the ultimate wedding feast in the new creation 
please, by your spirit, would you help each of us to trust and follow you and let you into our lives to bring about your transformation, particularly as we journey through this difficult season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.